it's not enough to have somebody who's driven and persistent and it's not even enough to have another person that's helping them you need a lot of people to believe in a project and to support it to make it happen From Transylvania Mountain Festival, I am Anka Berlo, and today I welcome you to the summer edition of the podcast recorded in Chamonix. This podcast is made on the go, and throughout the seasons we will be focusing our storytelling journey into mountain culture by talking to athletes and experts in skiing, rock climbing, mountaineering, canyoning, caving, paragliding and running, artists, scientists and creatives of all kinds. For our first episode, we invited longtime friend Cosmin Andron as a guest. Cosmin is an educator, philosopher, paddy dive master and IFMJ mountain guide, and also the instigator of Eastern European Mountain Guides Association. EMGA was set up in February 2016 as a program meant to establish a consistent training for professional mountain guides in Eastern European countries without IFMGA member associations. EMGA has since successfully trained the first generation of Eastern European mountain guides who received their certifications in 2018 and is currently training the second generation. Kasmin, I just wanted to start off with a few questions to where you are today. How and when did you start climbing? As far as I know, it was an early childhood passion. Yes, it was. I was 13. I was born and brought up in a small mining town surrounded by mountains. So in communist Romania, there wasn't very much else you can do in your spare time. I read on your blog that uh, there was actually a movie that inspired you. You went on a caving expedition and uh, in the evening you saw a movie that uh, made you build your own harness. I started with caving because of the people I was hanging out with. So although I started with rock climbing, um, I met a bunch of people that were really, really cool. All of them much older than I was who took me on all these caving expeditions and when I did my first uh, caving certification I think in early very early 90s maybe 92 I think or how old were you uh, 15 at the time I think I saw in one evening at the um, at Vadu Krishuli where was that uh, I think that was the very first post-communist caving school for techniques uh, on, on vertical terrain and I think I was the youngest there. They put a movie in the in the evening, and that movie was La Vie au bout du doigt with Patrick Edlinger. And for me, that film was a was a big turning point. Until then, I was uh, I was climbing with boots and very traditional style. I started in 1989, but I think after I saw that film, I realized that maybe that's what I want to do. Just uh, do rock climbing in the modern style. Caving. You started that with a club. Or I started like, it with a club. Yeah, there was a club. It was right after the Romanian Revolution. I, w- I was a bit older. I, I used to go always uh, hiking. I used to go hiking with my mom when I was a kid. And then uh, my best friend's father was a climbing instructor at the time. So I was, I was hanging out with them. I did a bit of skiing as a kid, which I hated. I hated because there wasn't very much downhill, although I was supposed to be doing uh, slalom. We'd used to just hike all day long with the skis on our backs. So I was doing all these outdoor things. And then when the caving thing happened, I was actually going out with some friends from rock climbing. And I met these older people sitting by a fire. They were also doing some rock climbs. But they tell, they told me about the caving club that was in our hometown. And they were doing all these expeditions to find and map all these new caves and to me it sounded like an amazing adventure that was 92 yeah to me it sounded like wow you know you can go to these places where no, nobody's been before i started going out with this caving club i read a few books about caving and uh, it just seemed amazing i, I remember I, I used to go with uh, on school trips and one of these school trips was in a very very big cave I think the biggest cave in Romania at the time that was discovered. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be part of a caving uh, club, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, actually, what I ended up doing was crawling into these little uh, tubes of mud where nobody else could crawl into because I was uh, maybe 14, 15, and I was weighing 40 kilos, and I was skinny as hell. So they would just send me up all these little canals full of mud, and 
and batshit to go and um, get the coordinates and then draw these maps. Which is very surprising because uh, 30 years later, a friend I haven't seen in, in, in 20 years, he sent me an email with some photocopies of the maps I draw in early 90s and they are at the Caving Institute in Cluj. And uh, those are some galleries I've, I've uh, mapped in early 90s, which I forgot about. So, so that was um, maybe the first time when I was um, doing uh, an outdoor activity in a very organized and regular fashion. So I would save money over the week and then on Friday evening, I'll just catch a train and go on these uh, caving expeditions. Which took place uh, only in Romania. You have Only not in Romania, yeah. Yeah, before travel. 89, I, I, I couldn't travel. I think I left Romania first time around the same time, maybe 92. I went to Hungary on a, an exchange program, which basically meant that a Hungarian kid came somewhere to Romania to live for a week with a family or two weeks, I can't remember. And I went to Nirajhaza in Hungary, which is like 30, 40 kilometers from the Romanian border. And I lived for a couple of weeks with a Hungarian family. So that was my first travel outside of Romania. I think it might have been 92. And I think in 94, it was my second trip when I went to Poland. Caving uh, as well? No, no. There was actually something to do with the European Union and some child programs. Anyway, I ended up in Poland, in Zakopane, I ended up a little bit in the Tatras. So that was my second trip. And I think that must have been 94. But otherwise, everything I, I climbed till 99, I think, everything was in Romania. So 89 to 99, 10 years, was climbing and caving uh, only in Romania. And mostly caving? No, actually, I gave up caving as soon as I, I got a diploma in, um, I went to that caving school I was telling you about. So after I saw that film, La Vie au bout du doigt, there was another film actually I saw with Isabelle Patissier. She was climbing this arch in a cave on the seashore. So when I left that school, that caving school, I was determined that I'll, I'll focus on, uh, on climbing. I didn't know at the time that that's sport climbing or whatever. I knew that it's not happening in big boots. I knew it's not happening in cold. I knew it's happening uh, not pulling on pitons and ropes and stuff. When I went back home, I, the first thing I asked my mom for a pair of leggings. That was the fashion at that, that time. That was the fashion at the time. And you continued climbing and while you were um, studying. Well, I was climbing instead of studying. I remember Bayamara, which, which is my hometown. It's not a big city. And, and it's surrounded by hills and rocks. Not, not the best quality rock. My high school was in the old center of the town, which is very, very close to the, the hills. I would be at school at all the classes I, I really enjoyed. And then everything I hated, I'll just uh, jump the, the fence and I'll go one of these hills where we had a, a rock outcrop, about 15 meters, 20 meters tall. And I'll just go and solo till the, till the end of the school day and then walk back to the high school, skip back into the high school and walk to the front door and go home. And... Uh, People were thinking I was always at school. I would get lost in the, all the all my classmates who would skip school at the same time, but they would go to the bar smoking or drinking, and I would just go to the park up on the hill and uh, do some laps on, on the rock. Did that, that time cross your mind that uh, this passion of yours would turn into a profession? Yes, it did. When I was finishing high school, so I was already 18, I've done a few winter routes. I was getting more seriously into ice climbing and winter routes, in, of course, in Romania. I was pretty good at, at sport climbing. At the time, probably my best grades in terms of sport climbing happened in my high school years. At the time, the rage was rope access work. Uh, Romania, as a, as a communist country, had a lot of industry and a lot of those uh, industrial complexes needed a refurbishment or painting or whatever. Bayamare, besides being a mining town, was an industrial town and we had this massive industrial complex that had a furnace, 350 meters tall furnace or whatever, something there. Anyway, huge, probably the, 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 the biggest furnace in the, in the country. And because of this climbing community we had and, and we used to go rock climbing, I've met the people who came to paint the markings on this furnace so the, the planes don't crash into it. I was surprised because it was a team of 
four or five people who seemed pretty relaxed. They stayed in the in the best hotel in town, one person per room. On the weekends, they would come on the crags climbing with us. And one of them was working at one of the nuclear plants in Romania down south. He was a physicist. I think he also had a PhD in physics or something like that. He told me like, well, he kind of took leave for the summer from his job and he was doing this painting of this furnace so he can buy off a flat and a car and whatever. And for me, that was like, wow, how can you make in the summer enough money to buy a car and, a, and an apartment? That was that was unreal. So um, that was the first time I thought that maybe climbing is something that I would like to do as a profession. I went home and I told my mom, okay, I want to do rope access. I don't want to go to university. And uh, of course, my family wasn't very happy. And we struck a deal. Uh, my mom said, okay, you can choose what you want to study for university. Just show up for the entry test. If you fail, then you can go and do rope access work. If you pass, then you're going to have to finish a degree. Well, I passed. And the discipline you chose was? Well, I chose philosophy, which again made my family laugh because that was my uh, hidden weapon. So when they said, okay, you choose your subject, just go to university. I said, okay, then I'm going to go and study philosophy. So from the fire into the frying pan or the other way around. I started studying philosophy and um, during the first term, I realized that I, I really liked it. I, I carried on climbing. I chose a town which had um, a lot of uh, rock climbing around, Cluj, where Transylvania Mountain Festival is based. I used to go rock climbing in uh, Turzi Gorge and study. But during the first term, I realized I really liked studying. And because I had the freedom from my family to study what I wanted, and they were very supportive, I didn't have to work as a student, which was amazing. I could just focus on studying. I spent most of my time in the library. By the second year at uni, I knew that I want to make a career of out of teaching. I was really into studying. But you kept on climbing. I kept on climbing. It wasn't my focus at the time. I was really attracted to to what I was studying. I, I studied out of passion, not because I had to get a degree. I didn't even care about the degree. The degree just came. But I think somewhere in the back of my mind, remember there was early 90s in Romania, I realized that studying it's for me the passport to leave the country and go and visit other places. When I was in high school, one of my favorite books was the memoirs of Mircea Eliade, who's a Romanian historian of religion and philosopher and anthropologist. Uh, he lived in between the two world wars and, and right after he died in the late 80s in Chicago. And, and he was like a vagabond. He was like teaching in one university for a few years, then moved to another country and then go to Asia, go to America, live in Paris, live in Lisbon, Portugal, move around, speak a lot of languages. And to me, that was extremely exotic. So... When I realized that study is something I like, but it's also a passport for me to travel. I didn't have the concept kids today have like, oh, you know, you're going to study and then you're going to have a, a year off, go traveling. For us, that was never an option. So this career in academia for me was a passport. Like, okay, if I'm good enough, then I can go and visit all these universities and, and live in all these exotic places. And exotic for me was Paris, Portugal, the States, UK. So it started with urban exploration. Yeah. Uh, when I was third year student, yeah, I, I did a four-year degree at the time. It wasn't a three-year degree. I wrote some papers. My my housemate helped me translate them because I wasn't really speaking any foreign language at the time. And some of them got published. Some of them got um, to somebody else's hands. And one thing led, led to another. I got invited on a research project in uh, in the UK and in Ireland and then uh, I got invited to stay there to do a PhD so uh, I guess I managed to get a passport out. In UK it's where you found a more structured environment for climbing as well for outdoor activities? In the UK I was really obsessed with building an academic career so first two years climbing really took a, a seat back. Uh, I wasn't climbing very much so when I start climbing again was uh, when I got involved with the university climbing club where, where some of my students were. So I started hanging out with them and I started going out with them and I discovered um, thread climbing as it's, uh, as it's now understood. What I did in Romania in terms of like long route, multi-pitch, it's still thread climbing. We were climbing on, on pegs that were put in the roots in the 50s, but we didn't really use uh, nuts or cams or anything like that. So when I moved to the UK and when I started climbing with this uh, rock climbing club, all my students, they were climbing shit grades, but they were all climbing with cams and nuts and hexes and all those kind of things, which was very interesting for me. So I've uh, I started experiencing with that. And the more I start discovering UK and then I start going up 
ice climbing and mixed climbing in Scotland, I got back into more active climbing. So in UK, how much time did you spend? Exactly? I lived in the UK for about five years. So first years were dedicated to academia, strictly uh, to building your... Uh, all my years career. in the UK, I was, I was teaching. I was, uh, I was a lecturer at University of London and I was teaching philosophy and classics. And then uh, in 2004, I decided for various reasons that I had enough. I used to come on the weekends uh, to the Alps, the low-cost air liners were at the, at the beginning at the time they had these uh, cheap flights uh, coming over like like now and uh, I used to come to the Alps by myself which was very reckless I, I survived a few my, my first few trips to to the Alps I kind of there was a survival experience and then uh, in 2004 I decided that I don't want to do like a normal life like a normal uh, job I wasn't sure what I wanted to do except climbing so uh, so I quit my teaching position which was quite controversial with with my friends and everybody around me because i was having a, a pretty decent uh, ascending career i came to courmayor to italy for a few months and i kind of roughed it up next to the post office and uh, it was a time when uh, the supermarkets were still allowed to put out in the bin behind the shop the the food that would go off so uh, i had some some food for a, for a few days from there and and I did some climbs around and then in the autumn of that year I went back home to Romania and it was time to start looking for a new job and the new job came in a weird uh, in a weird context I was very young at the time I think I was 27 28 and I was convinced that there is only one thing I know how to do which is uh, teaching uh, philosophy in a very very narrow field of philosophy which is late antiquity neoplatonism it's, it's not many jobs in the world for for this kind of specialty but um because I was so absorbed by my studies and what I wanted to do I didn't realize that actually there's a world out there that doesn't really care about how smart you are in this very very narrow field and when I was confronted with it I was complexed by the fact that I don't know how to do anything else I had some sort of papers as a climbing instructor but I there wasn't a job for serious people on one hand and then uh, my very narrow specialty or the thing I I thought or I knew I'm really good at I didn't know how to translate in the real world so I was a bit um, fused for a few months and then one day I got a spam that was inviting me not me particularly but I think it was it was inviting anybody willing to take the job to go and teach English in China and on the spur of the moment within two days of thinking I was on a plane to China to a place near Wuhan where I ended up teaching English and comparative literature. Was that the high school, university? It was a university. It was a university in a village. But that university in the village had more students than the biggest university I've ever taught at. It was technically, it, it was a university, but it was called a teacher's college. So it was, uh, it was preparing uh, teaching staff for anything from high school to university. So it wasn't uh, like a technical university. There were students uh, in humanities. So they were studying languages and literature and social studies. It was uh, in the town of Shening, which is uh, a bit south of uh, Wuhan. And uh, when I arrived there, uh, it was the national holiday, it was the October holiday. So there was nobody in campus uh, who spoke any English. There were like clerical staff. And I must have been one of the few, but at least for half a year, I was the only white I knew of in the village. And nobody spoke English till the students came back into the campus. So I had a, the first couple of weeks were pretty tough and tried to get around. My first thought on the way from the airport and when I got to the campus was how, how can I run back home? Nobody spoke English. Some people were running away from me. It was a bit surreal. Um, I had $20 in my pocket, which I spent on some chicken leg because I couldn't change the money. And then I was left without money and without speaking a word of Chinese in a village. I tried to get my, my bearings. Two or three months later, I was totally in love with the place. With my first salary, I bought a motorbike and I started exploring. Initially, I was uh, planned to, to stay there for eight months. And I remember when I left Romania, my mom told me, look, hey, you always wanted to go and visit Asia, so take the opportunity you don't like it you come back so I went there for eight months there was the contract and I ended up staying five years you remain in the same no I I, um, I went on a climbing trip I, I kind of discovered some some crags then I, I got in touch with the climbing Chinese climbing community there I started learning the language 
And funny enough, in Wuhan was the training center for the, the national squad for sport climbing in China. So I basically became friends with the national champions uh, in China who were really, really good. So they took me rock climbing. I, I got really well immersed into the climbing community in China. I have friends now, 20 years later, that uh, we're still keeping in touch. And in one of these climbing trips, I met an American who knew that I wasn't very happy at the university where I was teaching. And he proposed that I move down south to Guangzhou and work in the international school system and I was very reluctant because I never taught children and I, I, I don't think and I never thought I'm a, I'm a children's uh, person but uh, when the package for an international school teacher was put on the table it was uh, one of those offers you can't refuse so um, from university I went straight into teaching uh, grade six students how was that experience traumatizing for both <laughs> for both sides. And it lasted for how long? I lasted for a year and then I moved up uh, into into uh, late years of high school uh, teaching social sciences. I had a very comfortable life. It afforded me to go climbing most of the time and spend a few school holidays on expeditions within China, especially the Eastern Tibet and Sichuan proper Tibet. So I'd go there for ice climbing, mountaineering, 6,000 meter peaks, 5,000 meter peaks. I met a nice uh, group of expats, mostly, that were exploring the area. It was still the early years of exploring Xuanzhou and the ice falls there. And uh, we did together uh, quite a few first ascents, both in ice and, and mountaineering. This was year? 2004 to 2008. There's some information on your website, Cosmin. It's all lies. Andron.com. And that's, as far as I know, that's when you started your first business in mountaineering. No, actually, it was a bit later. In 2009, I came back to Romania. I went back to Romania for a year. It was a little experiment that didn't work out amazingly. So in 2010, yeah, so before coming to Romania, again, I quit my international school teacher career because uh, I, th I think I, I, I'm renewing myself every five years. There are cyclicities, we all have them. Yeah. Some uh, have them longer. Well, I think th this one, the last one I'm in, uh, I think it's, it, it's already past double the, the five-year cycle. So in, uh, in, at the end of uh, on Christmas 2008, I quit um, teaching and I came back to Romania. Then I moved to Bucharest, which was very weird because I haven't lived in Romania for for uh, 10 years. And I never lived in Bucharest before. Was that a cultural shock? It was as big as when I moved to China, to be honest. Because when I, when I left for the UK, uh, I was quite young. I think I kind of formed myself as an adult in the UK. And then it was the Chinese experience that was um, very enriching. But uh, without losing the contact or touch with Romania, I think socially I was a bit unadapted when I moved back. Uh, it made it a bit hard for me to accept where the country was and what was happening with my people. I had a job at one of the universities in Bucharest in short time. I was already doing some uh, instructing work. I was running some mountaineering courses. But then I had a I had a more decent stable job at a, as a director of international relations in a university in Bucharest and that kind of worked for about a year. But by winter of two thousand and ten, I wanted to get out of the system and I knew that I want to do this mountaineering thing more or less full time. When I was in China, I had some sponsors. Not that I needed them; I was well paid enough. But uh, a few Western brands were expanding to the Asian market, and I think Whiteface was uh, was really good propaganda at the time. But when I moved back to Romania, I've lost those sponsors. Actually, when I needed some some gear and uh, in the spring of uh, 2010 I went to Alaska on an expedition and spending uh, three four weeks there on the glacier it gave me enough time to ponder about my future and I realized that um, when that expedition was over that I don't want to I don't want to go back to university I want to work in the outdoors full-time I was uh, I was already a climbing instructor so as soon as I came back from Alaska I spent a few more months climbing in Romania 
Uh, I came to the Alps, I think, for a trip. And then uh, I left for Hong Kong, where I already had a lot of connections from my years in China. I had a lot of friends and some of my climbing and probably my best climbing partner at the time uh, lived in Hong Kong. And the plan was to work in the outdoor industry, get a bit more experience and then start my own business. Did that uh, expedition to Denali when you did the solo on the Cassin Ridge, was that like a vertical retreat when you decided this is the was that like a turning point this is what i'm gonna do right now i'm gonna dedicate myself to mountain life mountaineering yeah it was uh, unlike when i went to china when i was afraid to kind of change something that was comfortable in 2010 i knew that i wasn't comfortable i wasn't afraid to change i wasn't sure how can I make it sustainable? I knew, I was never an athlete, so I never saw myself as an athlete, so I did not expect outdoor brands to come knocking on my door and sponsor my lifestyle. But I wasn't sure how sustainable working in the outdoor industry was. When I came back in 2009 in Romania, I tried that for a few months and it was just uh, some sort of an uh, every third weekend gig that was not sustainable. So when I decided that I want to I wanna pursue this full time, I had to resort to connections I had from the past that would place me somewhere that this job would be sustainable. And Hong Kong, Hong Kong is my favorite city in the world. And it was good because I had friends. It was good because it was close to the big mountains, was um, was close to high quality rock climbing. It had an affluent population, a lot of it expats. It seemed like a good uh, like place to start. And also what was important that my partner, who became my, my climbing partner, who became my business partner, was already working in the outdoor industry. I lived in Hong Kong for two years and uh, we had a company, Jordi and I started in Hong Kong that uh, did quite well for a while. But then uh, in 2012, having already met my current wife, 2010, I decided to come back to Romania and find my luck there for a second time. Romania has been uh, a challenging return every time. In some ways, yes, uh, because you see, if you travel and you see what's possible to have in a country, it's always a challenge to come back and be frustrated that uh, you see that the potential is not um, fully realized. I came back to Romania in 2012. I moved my guiding business in Romania and despite all better advice from everybody around me who told me I cannot do that full time, I managed to survive from, from guiding and mountaineering instructing jobs. Would you say you survived, but was it was a struggle, was it? In the first year, for sure, because uh, nobody knew me in Romania. I, I, I was really away for a long time. I didn't have a market. Romania was not really the market for a guiding company that wanted to do what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I wasn't interested in doing treks. I was interested in doing expeditions. I was interested in doing uh, mountaineering, technical climbs, and there wasn't really very much of uh, of a clientele at the time the the big challenge was that people didn't want to be guided in romania they wanted to do courses so i would get the same people doing the same course over and over again but never wanting to be independent people would be available only on weekends so in a month i would only work maybe if the weather was good and if it was in the middle of the season like a holiday season then at the best i would work three weekends which is uh, which is six days in a month. I came from a pretty good income in Hong Kong, running a good business to something that paid the rent and the food. The good part was that I had the, most of the week for myself, so I'd just go rock climbing and hiking for myself or with my friends. As a business, it was challenging because um, I never knew how the season is going to look like. When I was in, before actually, before I left to Hong Kong, actually in several stages throughout my life, I tried to qualify as an IFMJ mountain guide. And initially it was just contacting the IFMJ or various organizations that were belonging to the IFMJ. And then when I decided that I'm going to run a guiding business, again, I was in touch with the IFMJ. But it never seemed to to be possible when I when I lived in Europe. Romania is not wasn't at the time part of the IFMGA. When I lived in Asia, it was very complicated because I lived in Hong Kong and training opportunities were uh, unless I moved out of Hong Kong, they were not they were not really there. So it was uh, it was a bit of a struggle as a Romanian licensed mountain guide. My options for legal work were whether 
I stayed in Romania or I would go to non-regulated countries, which means countries that don't have strict rules for who can be a mountain guide. So it wasn't really relevant if I went to China or India or Nepal or Caucasus or Turkey or whatever, that I was a real mountain guide or just somebody who called himself a mountain guide. At the time, I already had IFMG mountain guide friends who I knew that they had a a normal life, having a normal job, living in the Alps, in the Western Alps. And they could wake up in the morning, go do a job, come back in the evening, earn a wage that they could live off. For me, especially after I came back to Romania, because Hong Kong is not a regulated country, it's not really a mountaineering destination. So whatever qualifications I had to run a guiding business, they were okay. And I worked in non-regulated countries like Nepal and, uh, and China. But when I came back to Romania, there wasn't enough work. So becoming an IFMG mountain guide became impressive. I've already tried several avenues and the only one actually that got at some point more hopeful was when I started training with the Swiss Mountain Guide Association. But unfortunately, uh, my ski level did not allow me to finish the program. Also, the cost was quite uh, quite forbidding for somebody who was living in uh, Romania and, uh, and earning a wage. In the end, I realized that it's not gonna work if this quest is just at a personal level. And I've already met quite a few other people who are trying from my part of the world, Eastern Europe, to get into the training to have a chance for education, a chance that was realistic, that was affordable, that was, uh, we're still talking about 10 years ago, that would give them a real access. And the, the story was the same, people at an individual level trying and failing for various reasons, mainly financial. Also, in our part of the world, behind the Iron Curtain, mountaineering was not seen in the same way as it was seen in the West. So you would not get a very rounded education. So you would not grow up skiing and climbing and doing this with your family and in a bourgeois recreational environment. If you wanted to ski, then you'd be picked up in school, your aptitudes will be tested, then you go to ski camps, and you'll become enrolled in a, in a sports club and your goal was to be competition skier. If you're good at climbing, then you would become part of a climbing club and you'd be regimented, you'd go with the club, you'd go and you'll specialize. There was no such a thing like you wanna do everything. It was not the concept of leisure, it was the concept of being a sportsman. As an adult, I might have been really good at some things, but I was lacking a lot in other things. Unlike, let's say, our French counterparts or Swiss or Austrian counterparts who would be equally good at skiing and climbing and they'll have a very rounded education. We used to be herded in only one direction and tried to excel in that one. So um, this was the, the plague of the Eastern Europeans, if you want, for in, in, in training for um, IFMJ guides. Some people would be like really high level skiers, but they would not rock climb or alpine climb or they'd be really, really good climbers or have a lot of experience in climbing and mountaineering and alpinism and expeditions, but they could not ski. And I was somehow in the same in the situation that my, my skiing at the time was not good enough for me. After I, uh, I left the Swiss uh, training, I focused more on my skiing. And at the same time, I was trying to come up with an idea that was, wasn't just going to benefit me but was more inclusive because I believe that if it's more of us that are in this situation and we manage to kind of get access to education we can have access to also the badge at the end of it in a proper way. So as a man with uh, initiative and uh, education as a main motive I know you've been involved in other activities in Romania like you're trying to lift the level you were also in, involved with the Romanian Alpine Club, the Federation. Is um, that something in in our family? We are two hyperactives. My wife, she she can't sit still. She has to bounce around and do pull ups and run around, and she's that kind of hyperactive. I'm the other kind of hyperactive. If I sit down on a chair, if I don't work on a project, then I get really nuts. I don't like doing pull ups and I don't like running around, but my head is running around all the time. So. When, when I moved back to Romania, a bunch of people who I thought they are my friends, they twisted my arm and they got me to the Romanian Alpine Club, which proved to be a year and a half of very intense experience. 
It was my first experience into the this NGO social activity. I'm normally quite antisocial. I don't really hang out with people. And being thrown into being the president of the Alpine Club brought a lot of attention to me, not in the way I necessarily wanted it. And I think I was there for about a year, a year and a half as president. I had a few ideas. I think a couple of them materialized. I'm not the one who's to say how good or bad that was. It's somebody else who's going to decide. But I think that opportunity somehow made me a bit more public or more involved with the community. So I started being involved more with the guides association, more with the legislation, trying to push some changes in the legislation for the mountain guides in Romania. This didn't necessarily meet the approval of, uh, of most of my peers. I was sometimes seen as an elitist or somebody who's trying to make life hard for uh, the 300 plus mountain guides in Romania when when I was advocating for an IFMGA standard for the mountain guides I was part of projects you see you said opportunity the opportunities are good but if they show up and there's nobody else at the receiving end these opportunities would just be dead in the water so same as with the EMGA all my initiative and all my knocking on the doors for many, many years, met no answer, or the answer was just very polite and politically correct. Like, I was always given a list of uh, things to tick, and that list was totally unrealistic. Regardless of how stubborn I was, some some people call me, I'm like rust, you know, I, I don't give a big blow, I just like keep eating at it forever, till I get my way. So um, one day, my stubbornness and, and persistence met people who are willing to listen. So I think in all the projects I was involved, there was this lucky meeting between me being stubborn or adamant to achieve something and people who are willing to listen or work with me. So it was never just one-sided. Same happened with Alpine Club, where we managed to realize some small things. Now that I look back, they actually may be minute, but it was just because people were willing to work together. Then with the guiding community in Romania, a couple of things were, were realized, but again, because at some point people, whether they got tired of hearing them or they were convinced, they managed to make them happen. And same happened with the EMJ. And the EMJ got more traction. Traction and attraction. It was, it's probably the project I was most uh, stubborn to make it happen. And um, and I had friends who, when I wrote one of the ex-memoirs that I've sent to the FMGA, I remember now that we were sitting in a hotel room in the south of Romania and he told me, those guys will never read your bullshit. They'll never answer to you. And actually there was one person who, who actually read it. It was the, at the time the president of the FMGA and came to visit Romania, came to meet me, we discussed about it and it still took quite a few years after that for for this to happen again how many it, years i think their first to be visit a bit was persistent 2015 maybe 14 15 and we had the first entry test for eastern europe in 2016 but even then it wasn't just me being stubborn and hannah Dent's being open to listen to me it was that after the first entry test we were still dead in the water because we had an entry test but we couldn't start the training the next president christian was also on board and what's more important was that the alpine countries which is france germany austria italy switzerland they were all on board and they were convinced to be on board and to support us so it's not enough to have somebody who's who's driven and persistent and it's not even enough to have somebody another person that's helping them you need a lot of people to believe in a project and to support it to make it happen so now they work together with us on the training program. I know that's uh, something new for them as well, because on this occasion, all these uh, Alpine countries, they got the chance to work together on a curricula dedicated to the Eastern European I think it was a generation. Chance. I think it was a chance for instructors from more established countries to come and work together at the same level. So rather than having one instructor from a country visiting another training where as a guest either would be very shy or would be allowed to speak his mind but not really listen to because they already had a system going. We never had a system going. So we had to create a system. And, and my dream was that we would get instructors from as many traditions as possible. 
and nobody would run the show. So we don't have the German curriculum, we don't have the French curriculum, we don't have the Swiss curriculum, we don't have the Spanish curriculum. We have our own that is actually a combination of what the instructors bring in. And we had instructors from all these countries. But they had to come and work together. They had to come and find a common ground. And the FMJ Technical Commission level, this is somehow the idea behind an international curriculum. Something that everybody can, like a big bucket where everybody can throw in the best things they have and use it for the training rather than being insular. For us being the guinea pigs of this big pot of traditions in guiding, for us it was hard in a way, for the students it was hard because they would get informations from one course to the next they were not always the same or identical but looking back at the first generation the guys who came out of there they have the tools the same tools that an italian or a french or a german or an austrian or a swiss mountain guide has and they can choose they, they were exposed to all this tradition and even now in the second generation and uh, in the next generation in the next generation I am, as long as I'm the technical director of the EMGA, I want to keep the system in which we have international instructors, instructors from all or as many traditions as possible throughout the training. And of course, at some point, our own instructors. But I would like to keep this international um, composition, if you want, of the instructors. So, for example, in the last in the last course, that was uh, the last course before the pandemic broke out. It was um, a ski touring course in non-glaciated terrain. We ran it in uh, Slovakia. We had two instructors from Slovakia and one instructor from uh, Germany. The following uh, course that we had to defer to next year. It was supposed to be ski touring on glaciated terrain that would have happened in Austria with an Austrian instructor, a Kiwi instructor, a Romanian assistant instructor. Then the next one is happening in the Dolomites with Sudtirolians and German and Romanian and the next one with French in Chamonix. So it's, it's all this international composition, if you want, of the instructor. How do you feel the European mountain professional community welcome this new generation of Eastern European guides well, among them? It was received with skepticism. Maybe even to this date, there are people who think that EMGA is the easy way in to get the badge. And, um, you know, we just can argue about it. If you have 30 places to start training and you have 150 applicants, to join the training program. The only way you can decide on 30 is to ask 7A for sport climbing, but the IFMGA charter only requires 6B+. So there are some associations that, because they have a very tough entry test, which is uh, required by the sheer number of people joining the entry test, they think that because they have higher technical level at, at the entry test, they would produce better guides. Well, reality shows that that's not the case. Even countries that have one person starting the training and they can afford to go through that training for financial reasons can have really good guides. So at the EMGA, we are interested in what kind of guides come out at the end of the training rather than how good athletes they are. And at the moment, all the people who enter the training, they fulfill the common IFMG platform requirements for the entry test. So would you say that aside the technical knowledge, you need uh, some soft skills and they are quite important in this job? The soft skills are extremely, extremely important. I got, I got into this job quite late in my life, rather than very, very early. So maybe I'm seeing the guiding profession slightly different than somebody who's 20 year old and thinks that if they're going to become a guide they're going to be climbing all day long north faces with clients and you need to climb 8b to be a good guide i got into this job quite late when climbing 8b probably is not on my menu i think our clients are on holiday and they are here to have a good time and maybe there some of them are here to challenge themselves but uh primarily we work in the service industry we work in the tourist service industry we are here to give people an experience, a quality experience. We are not there to chase them. We are not there to, to scare the shit out of them. We are not there especially to put them in danger. We are doing this job to offer them an experience that's as safe as can be in the mountains. We, we don't eliminate the risk. We just try to, to work with it. But um, 
primarily to give them a good time. So soft skills are a very big, very important part in my view of our job. Having a client that leaves a trip for which they paid a thousand bucks living in tears because the guide was shouting and abusing them, I don't think that's that's where we do our job. Having them challenge, having them push the limits, having them come back and over and over again, I think that takes a lot of skill that's beyond climbing and skiing. In most of the years in Chamonix there is La Fête du Guy where the Compagnie de Guy de Chamonix is um, is organizing these festivities to celebrate the anniversary of the company and it's a festivity designed for guides and celebrate the guides and the relationship of the guides with their clients. A few of these festivities where I was, they were handing out medals or, or prizes or diplomas, whatever there was recognition to the longest surviving relationship between a guide and a client. And you'd see this old man in their 70s just walking up in Argentier on the stairs of the church, they could barely walk and they would just like smile and get this diploma and say, hey, look, you know, we've known each other for 50 years or for 40 years and he's been, been my guide for 40 years and we've done all these amazing things together. So that, that's what guiding is for me. It's, it's building relationships to have a relationship with somebody that you facilitate to have a, a good a quality experience in the mountains and then you go on and have that relationship extended throughout your life hopefully a very long life so for this reason within the EMG training I was very adamant that we should have at least one course that's exploring uh, psychological side of our job the soft skill not only our relationship with the clients but ourselves. For this uh, second generation we had Mike Wright from the Swedish Mountain Guide Association who run uh, a workshop on, on soft skills. I really wanted to have Mike run this course because he has some training in psychology and I really liked what they were doing in the Swedish Association where they place equal importance on how the guide perceives himself and his colleagues or guides around him as much as he perceives the client. So it's not important just how you deal with the clients and how you talk to your clients and how you treat your clients, but it's also, I think, very important how you see yourself as a professional in relationship to your colleagues and how you explore what this job, what this profession challenges you with. This looks like an inviting career path for mountain passionates, for those, uh, for example, in uh, Eastern Europe who probably wouldn't have thought that it's possible to make a living out of this mountaineering, climbing interest. Well, it takes more than climbing hard grades to make a living. As a mountain guide, you need to, you need to get trained, which is going to cost you a lot. Um, both physically, uh, mentally and financially. Well, it depends where, you, where you're doing your training. In some countries there is a state for the guides training. So the state takes the burden of uh, a part of the training. Slovenia is one example where the state takes, if I'm not wrong, maybe half of the cost of the training. So the, the students only pay half. In France there is quite some subsidy for the guides training, so the, the people who are enrolled and they train in France, they have their uh, tuition partially subsidized. In Italy there is quite a huge subsidy, so actually Italian mountain guides through the training they pay quite uh, low prices even compared to us Eastern Europeans. On the other hand, other countries have no subsidies, no subsidies and um, their training, especially if it's um, commensurated to the country they live in it's quite high like switzerland or uh, united kingdom but with the emga we were lucky that for the first generation we managed to enlist some support from the alpine countries for the second generation the students are supporting their own um, their own expenses and brings the training somewhere between 13 to fifteen thousand euros for three years this sounds a lot for people especially coming from East Europe, even if they're EU countries. But uh, unlike a university degree that would cost you probably twice that much, if you are good, if you pass your exams, if you work, then uh, you can recover half of this money within the first season as an aspirant. And then I think within two or three years you can pay off your studies, which is not the case for a university degree or most university degrees. If you want to do this career, it's more than physical training, mental training and money. It's also success 
whatever that means doesn't necessarily come through just having a big name it success is something that comes every day through your relationship with your clients because as i said again we work in the service industry we work in the tourism industry we are providing a quality experience or we're trying to provide a quality experience to our clients so if we are not providing that for them they will not come back and if they don't come back then we don't have a job regardless of how good technically we are in terms of uh, market do you feel that in eastern europe there's a change between how the leisure and mountaineering uh, market was in 2010 and how it is now it is a change it's there are more clients uh, for sure in romania i'm talking about romania now i don't know the other countries there is more work in romania now than it was 10 years ago Do you, um, do you feel that clients and the public is a bit more educated right now that knows better what to ask? Better, I don't think it's better educated. Um, I think Eastern European countries, those in the EU for now, and then probably is going to move even to those that are not part of the EU, have gone through some phases. It was the initial phase after the communist regime when everything was... about survival then it was everything about building a house and managing to send your kids to university abroad and then it moved to the stage where the middle class start investing in flashy cars and exotic holidays uh, on the seaside and slowly slowly now that there is more disposable income in these countries that the income in in the eastern european countries is coming closer to the uh, to the central european countries Also, all this uh, fad of uh, new houses, new cars, new holidays in the Maldives has kind of gone away. So people that are looking more to the West and they try to, well, that's my feeling, they try to emulate what happens there. So there's more money poured now into well-being, into yoga, into all these kind of things that happen in the West. And luckily for us, they start moving more into the... into mountain guides and the services they offer. So adventure travel, it's more appealing now, even for people in Eastern Europe, and it's definitely in Romania. If in 2010, I would get maybe work one, or in 2009, when I was there, I would get work one weekend in a month, and maybe especially in winter, in 2015, for example, I would get work every weekend in the summer and every weekend in the summer. It's still not enough compared to the Western or the Alpine countries, but it, uh, it, it already showed a, a big difference. And now, although I don't have many Romanian clients, I have mostly international clients. There are a lot of Romanians that are now interested and willing to employ a mountain guide. which is good, it's good for my colleagues, it's good for, I think even for the industry in Romania, and it's good for, for them that they choose this type of uh, tourism, which is active outdoor sports tourism. But it all, it's all related to the disposable income. So as long as um, the economy would move up and there would be disposable income, then we would, we would do well. But that works for guides from any country. We are in the leisure industry. When people are starving, they don't have disposable income. The last thing they will worry about is hiring a mountain guide. When people are doing well, when the economy is good, when they cover their necessity, then they think about leisure. And luckily enough, in some parts of the world, people choose to do the leisure activity in the mountains. And then they need us. for listening to Transylvania Mountain Festival podcast with Anka Berlo. If you want to know more about the event, check out www.transylvaniamountainfestival.ro where you can also enter this year's mountain film and mountain photography competition. Also, if you like our show, please leave us a review on iTunes and give us a rating. It really helps.